0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com.
2: Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Caston, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Our guest today is Charles Hunter, the general manager of City Winery in Boston, a man with a long history in the hospitality business. A recent transplant from New York City, Charles came to Boston just a bit before COVID closed everything down, including City Winery. And if you don't know about City Winery, it's a major music venue with a huge 300-person space and smaller, intimate performance spaces, a large restaurant, and an honest-to-God winery on the premises. We started recording our podcast, our live shows, in the Haymarket Lounge at City Winery in that time just before. We are hoping to be back soon. Charles is a doer in the hospitality and music world, the ultimate leader. Let's have a listen. Where did you grow up and how did the food thing find its way to a career path for you?
3: It's funny, it's, a, it's kind of a dual mold thing. I grew up in uh, Queens, New York, a uh, family house, and my mother was not a good cook. And I realized that at a young age, and simply because... I went to a friend's house for dinner and I forget what the dish was, but there was butter involved and I don't know if it was butter on the bread or what have you. And I was amazed at the explosion of taste in my mouth. And I said to the mother, you know, what is this? You?" She says, it's, it's, it's butter. She said, no, 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 this isn't butter. I don't know. This is not butter. And when I found out that my mother, of course, used parquet margarine and I'd never tasted butter before. So that got me to thinking that there are other things that I had not tasted because my mother was cooking from cans rather than fresh, so on and so forth. And I started to explore it. But you don't know how to go about that when you're young. So you do normal thing. You get a job in the supermarket So I was a cashier at a stock boy. And at the age of 17, my next door neighbor was going away to college. And he says to me, listen, what are you doing right now? I said, well, I'm down at the the, the AMP. He says, I've got a great job. I'm leaving it now to so going away to college. I'll get you in. He said, Terrace on the Park. You're going to be a, a cater waiter." I said, okay, I don't know anything about this, but hey, it'll be fun. He took me down. I tried out at 17. I became a waiter at Terrace in the Park doing these huge parties and, you know, going to high school, working Thursday night, Friday night, double Saturday, double Sunday. I loved it. It was infectious. I got to learn about food and wine and guest relations. And I really fell in love with it. I then went to college and I became a major D for Dante Catering. And I did that through college. You come out of college where you do the normal thing that you think you're supposed to do. I went to Wall Street and worked for Oppenheimer Capital.
0: Two wait, years years. say
2: that again. You I went, went, went to
3: Wall Street and worked for Oppenheimer Capital because I had gone to school for communications and business management. And the next move, of course, everybody goes down to Wall Street. And you work for Prudential or you work for Oppenheimer or you work for, you know, Goldman Sachs. You work for one of these companies. That's what you do. And I was at the World Financial Center for two years, worked for Oppenheimer Capital, and I couldn't stand it. I just couldn't stay. I missed the action. I missed being around people in a party setting, in a dining setting, weddings and, and events. It's just, it was infectious. I missed the food. I missed always being in the midst of a party. Even though I was serving, you're part of the, the action. And so I uh, left Wall Street and I got the first corporate job I have ever had with the RetroPist and that was with all Places, IHOP International. And so... They liked what I was doing, and they sent me to Philadelphia to be a GM there on Walnut Street, and that's what it all started. And from so there, yes.
2: <laughs> you went from the financial world to IHOP. And, Correct. And tell me, are there really any berries of the boysenberry syrup? Yes. Okay.
3: Thanks. There were, they were back <laughs> then, though, mind you. you know, This was it's, some years ago. This is when they cracked real eggs and had no liquid eggs and things of that nature, which has all since changed. Your path varies, and, and I went on to a couple of companies that were more fine dining, casual themed, and then I got a call, and it was a funny call because a friend of mine had worked for Barbara Smith, I don't know if you remember B. Smith's, on 8th Avenue at uh, at her restaurant. She was looking to open up and expand, and she had one restaurant, which she had with a corporate partner, which she, her and her husband, and Dan, bought to have their own restaurants that they owned and get away from this company. And I got a phone call from Barbara Smith one day and I said, no, oh, this isn't, this isn't B Smith. She said, no, it really is. I'd like you to come and talk to me about doing the Hampton Sag Harbor. We we're going to open a restaurant. So this is 1998. And, um, I go down, I meet with her and Dan, they bring you on immediately. They bring me to uh, Sag Harbor and the space was magnificent. It's right on the water, end of the Long Wharf on Main Street. And it's, it was 350 seats, indoor, outdoor terrace, two bars. Just everything you saw, every look was of yachts and water. So we, we opened that up in 38 days from the day I walked in and it was extravagant. It was the best time I ever had. I worked very hard, but it was a great time. Um, put that concept together, and then that was seasonal. So we then went back to New York and opened up on Restaurant Row next to Joe Allen's, and we opened that one up on Restaurant Row. And then I would go back and do the uh, the summers in the uh, Hamptons and back to Manhattan in New York. And it was just a fabulous time. It was just a fabulous time. And then, of course, your career moves. So I took some time off, and this is the first time in my life I actually took six months off from work and did not. Go into a restaurant other than to dine. It was a cathartic moment, really recentered me. And then, you know, I went back and did a couple of concepts and I decided I wanted to have my own, which was always the dream. And I had a wonderful conversation with a gentleman who was an entrepreneur and a philanthropist in New Jersey. And he was big into the jazz scene that he felt was neglected in New Jersey because New York was really the home of jazz way back when. And he got this property and asked me to be a, a partner, an operational partner in it. So I had my own restaurant, Eleven Clinton, right downtown Newark. It was fantastic—an eighty-eight seat concept with a full bar and a small stage that could sit, fit up to five people, five <laughs> five pieces. We did live jazz Thursday through Sunday, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday brunch, no cover charge. Our menu was southern eclectic. And it was just a wonderful time, though. I was not super financially successful. It didn't make me a million dollars. I touched every table, literally. And when you get people walking out the door, smiling and talking about what a wonderful time they had, how they're going to send people back for that, that pork chop dish or the ribs or what have you. And you start looking at the Yelps, the Googles, the uh, Trip Advisors and all that stuff. You know, I was 4.5 on, on Yelp. I was 4.5 on Google. I was 5.0 on TripAdvisor It's nothing but great comments. I was in a lot of the comments as to how they guarantee that somebody would come to the table. What I loved about it though, was my staff really bought into what hospitality is all about. They really bought into every guest matters every time, follow the plan, give every guest 110%, even if you've seen them 10 times, don't try to, you know, slide by. And if you follow my, you know, steps of service, you mimic back your order to the guest, you double check your order before you start bringing it in, you double check before you bring it out to the table. All those little things will turn out to be a wonderful experience for the guest. You'll make money. You'll stay alive. Everybody will be happy. It was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. I loved it. I really did. And I think I went out on a right note because people were very upset to see me closing the doors.
2: Why did you close the doors?
3: I didn't agree with where we were going. There was no upper unit. We were one block off of Market Street in Newark. We were being beaten up by big names that were one block away. Plus, we didn't have any parking on the block I was in. So, guests wouldn't come out to me if they had to spend $40 to park on an event night. Little things like that. It was location. I mean, they were building, 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 but nobody was out on the street at night. There was no foot traffic. And so it dawned on me that this was not sustainable. And if I was going to do it, I wanted, to do it right in a different location. So I said, let me just regroup and start back over square one. There's nothing that says I have to stay there. So at that time, I took some time off. And of course, I found City Winery. And I really enjoyed the culture. When I was uh, talking to them, I knew what I wanted. I didn't want to just go into some place and run a unit for them. I wanted to have say, I wanted to have some entrepreneurial role in it. I wanted to be able to develop it and, and I wanted them to back me. I wanted to work with people who, who really understood what it was all about. And that's when I met, um, David Miller, who's the CEO of the company. David is phenomenal. This is somebody who I turned and looked at and said, this is the guy I want to work with for the next five, 10 years. This is, this is good for me. And so I made the move to, uh, Boston and, and uh, Revere Beach. Now, I've been happy ever since. Then came the pandemic. <laughs> that's my history in a nutshell. I'm um, happy to be here, and I'm just doing the thing that everybody's talking about now, which is pivoting during the quasi-post-pandemic.
2: How did you cope during the pandemic, you yourself? Did you cook it done at home?
3: I ended up running the greenway, because since it was an outdoor space, and we had shut down the main location in November, I ran the greenway all of last summer, yeah. shut down the greenway and the main location, We were shut down from November to February, and we just opened back up beginning March with the Greenway and the main location open. I spent November to January kind of decompressing and running back and forth between New Jersey and here because, of course, my fiancé still has the apartment there. We have the apartment here. So now we're coming together.
2: I spoke to you at some point when you were open in a skeleton way. And you said, I can't talk to you right now. So I am the greeter, the general manager, the cook,
3: <laughs>
2: and the yes. bartender. Yes. So, so what was that like?
3: It was funny. My sister joked with me. She said, you're back in the kitchen again, huh? She said, yes. Yeah, sometimes you have to step back a moment in order to continue moving. And myself and my um, service director at the time, Tom, we did the, what is it, the pub? uber eats and all that fun stuff we were doing deliveries to buildings near us we were doing, doing deliveries directly upstairs to one canal which is the residential building we occupy we were you know running to the door for real home and you know, so they could deliver it was really a delivery based situation and we were doing and you know they they relaxed the rules on alcohol so we were doing growlers and sangria and margaritas to go a very interesting pivot. Very interesting time. We were working our butts off. And we were just trying to keep it going. And that's why when I had my couple of months off there, it was needed. It was needed.
2: I have to ask you, because I've been around the food business a long time, and I don't know so many Black men and upper management in food.
3: There are now. Is That There it's, are I've now. always. There really aren't uh, still to this day. I can... And over the years, I've been at high-level meetings, and I'm the only one of two people of color in a room full of 10, 15, 20 people. We are in the hourly craft pool. It's very diverse Then you talk about the different positions in the restaurant. But when you come to roles of leadership, whether it be general manager, uh, district manager, so on and so forth, it's not very... Uh...
2: So what do you think? Because, I mean, there are certainly a lot of People of all sorts of colors who are interested in food. What do we do to open it up?
3: I just think it's exposure and making sure that you're a mentor. You know, um, I try to find anybody who I feel has got the talent and the the wherewithal, the drive, because it's not an easy business. It's really not a nine to five Monday through Friday by any stretch of the imagination. So you have to have somebody who wants food. It's gotta be a passion. And then once I see that or feel that, I'll, I'll do my best to get anybody. Well, you know, just anybody into the right position. And I found that I've, I've actually, believe it or not, had a lot of success in promoting women. I've got a number of women who I depend on wholeheartedly and trust them fully. Uh, and that's a wonderful thing.
2: Yeah, it is a wonderful thing. So talk to me a little bit about like when you cook, what's your palate? And, and oh, does...
3: I'm a I'm I'm a meat and potatoes kind of guy. I'm I'm fish and meat. There's no vegetarian here. Uh, I like to play around with sauces, uh, and, and I also try to do things that are new and different. Um, I, again, I love cooking for the family, and I'll do a dish that they'll ask me the recipe for, and I say, I "Don't know what I just put it together." You know, I use the I use the Asian mango and salmon and a little sauce, and they want me to recreate it, and I can't because I don't do it for a cookbook. I do it just to play around and have fun, and I'm amazed when it comes out right.
2: I want that recipe. (laughs) He should make (laughs) it. That sounds really yummy to me. Wow. (laughs) We'll be back with Charles Hunter in a minute and hear a little bit more about his adventures in food.
1: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com.
2: And we are back with Charles Hunter. So Charles, I need to ask you, if if you think back to your most profoundly moving spiritual food experience, where would it be? Tell me about it. What did you eat? Who Ooh, were that's you a with? Good one. Why did
3: it matter? That's know. a good one. Ooh. And there have been a couple. I would say it was my sister. My sister is a few years older than I am, and when I was younger, she was one who really introduced me to, to different places in Manhattan down on down Broadway. And there was an establishment called Marvin Gardens, and it was on Broadway. Wait, Fantastic. that's a that's
2: on my monopoly board.
3: <laughs> Marvin Gardens yes it was a fantastic spot but I still remember I mean we went there I was as young as 10 and it had a bar in the front it was very lively very you know meet and greet towards the back it was small maybe 40 seats but they had changing artwork on the walls some were art sometimes was pictures so on and so forth it was fabulous and they had a New York strip steak that was like butter and even as a young man, I've gone there and my goal was to finish that steak. And with the company of my sister, you know, I tried different things. I, you know, I tried Frog's Lakes for the first time. I tried all kinds of, food. it was always an adventure being with her. And I found that that was my experience. It was that if you were with the right people and sharing a common experience, it made the food taste better. It made the wine taste better. The entire experience was just electric. And so that was my favorite time being with my sister and having a simple New York strip that was cooked perfectly with some herb butter on top at Marvin Gardens. I was too young for the wine at that time, but the steak was great.
2: What a great memory. What a great memory. Is there anything I didn't ask you about that you'd like to talk about that has to do with food?
3: I used the term passion before, and it's amazing to me that I'm in a business that I think if I had known when I was in four, I may not have done it, but now I can't think of being anywhere else except for hospitality, food, music, you know, that wine, the whole thing. I, I'm so steeped in it and I just can't imagine anything else. It's never a boring day. It's never the same day twice. Some days I wish were a little boring, but it's never boring. It's always somebody new to talk to, a new experience to be had, a new obstacle in some cases, a new venture. It's never boring. Never boring.
2: I think that's great. Thank you. Yeah, because people don't know about City Winery either. So, yeah.
3: So that's what I'm always surprised about is that people don't really know how multifaceted uh, City Winery Boston is. We've got a 326-seat main venue that we do music in pre-pandemic every night. Now we're trying to do at least five nights a week. We've got a smaller Haymarket lounge that seats 75, stands 90. That's also a performance space with a stage. We do comedy, we do local acts there. We've got an art gallery that does a standing 50 person cocktail party. We've got a tasting room that seats 36 and every one of our rooms has audio visual, pulled out screen, a projector in the ceiling. And the tasting room we use for wine tasting, cocktail classes, uh, business lunches, birthday parties, things of that nature. We of course are an active urban winery. So we crush thousands of pounds of grapes every year We ferment in the winery upstairs, and we age downstairs in the Valley, which we have two of. One is temperature check for red wine, and the other is temperature check for white wine. We have a full bar, full lounge, and a 150-seat sit-down fine dining restaurant. All these things going together, you can do weddings. We can do corporate events. We have something going on in every room. And then during the summer, we have the green line. We have a wine trailer that we leave down there all summer, and it's got taps. And of course, the wine that we make at Eighty Beverly, we dispense on the Greenway. And we have some games. We have live music, We have corn bowl and pudding greens and some light foods and cheese and charcuterie, sandwiches, things of that nature, and beer and wine. So there's always something going on at City Winery, whether you're at the main location at Eighty Beverly or if you're down on the Greenway at uh, Dewey Square.
2: I'm excited. I'm optimistic for you for the year ahead.
3: Thank you. I appreciate
2: it. And you know, thank you so much. This thank great. you for having me. Okay. Okay. wonderful. Good luck with the move and the marriage. As I said, <laughs> you never know, we might crush your wedding now. So. <laughs> okay.
3: <laughs> I won't turn you away.
2: Thank you, Charles. We hope to be back at City Winery soon and hope to see you there. For more information about City Winery, visit their website, citywinery.com. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team, producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org. Or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place.